0: Hey there, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. In this episode, we're going to start talking about using chainmail as chainmail. <laughs> using chainmail, I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of where how I got to where I'm at and the beginnings of uh, uh, the leveling system, for lack of a better word, that I'm working on, my concept of how the game might work or be structured. Um, the mechanics are going to be fairly simple, I think, to, to deal with, so I kind of want to do some, kind of like some overarching... Uh, concepts in in, in uh, I almost said videos uh podcasts about that to get some to get that feelers out to see what people might think of that or if that makes any sense to them uh so you know because sometimes think something makes sense to you and then you're like um you say it to somebody and they look at you with the uh what so anyways uh, let me know what you guys think about that uh then we'll take some calls from John from Jason from the nerds RPG variety cast and from BJ from the Arcane alienist so uh buckle up here we go Okay, so we will consider this. I guess the beginning of talking about uh, formally talking about this new uh, new chainmail hack, which is for those who maybe are new to the show. Um, I started the show talking about using the chainmail combat system with original Dungeons and Dragons and created a supplement, which uh, I will put a link to. I guess if I can figure out how to do it um, here, if you want to add that combat system, I think that or I discovered that. What we found by using the chainmail combat system, which is actually systems, with OD&D, that it really changed the feel of Dungeons & Dragons for myself and my group. Uh, Fighters became much more deadly and powerful uh, because of it. And it leaned the the game much more in a fighter-focused direction, if you will. Um, which we often hear uh, people and see if we read it, uh, people say that, you know, that, that was what uh, Gary Gygax loved, was that he, he expected the hero to be a fighter. But then when you look at, um, you know, AD&D or even OD&D, using the uh, the alternate combat rules, you know, a magic user, if you just take the three little brown books so the magic user at first level has the same chance of hitting as a fighter does, And while the fighter can use a sword, all weapons do the same damage. So you're looking at a fighter, you know, having the same chance to hit the goblin as the magic user and doing the same damage at first level. Now, yes, as things scale, I think the first three levels, as things scale, fighters do become more deadly, obviously, and things change up. But um, certainly at the low levels, um, fighters are not super powerful unless you consider, of course, that they can wear Better armor which of course makes them live longer <laughs> so that's important right and of course they can they are the only ones that can wield magic swords so magic swords being about 20 percent of the the magic items that you find um they should be pretty popular so you should if you're running an OD&D campaign by the book and i've had this discussion on my youtube a bunch where people you know you run your world the way you want to run it but by the book you you should be running into magic items fairly commonly and those magic items should fairly commonly be swords. So by the time a fighter has been on a couple of adventures, they probably should have a magic sword. So again, that starts messing with that. But if we take the rules and we want to play it, let's say a little bit more swords and sorcery, right? A little bit low magic. We don't want to have so many magic items. Now the fighter really isn't as powerful as uh, they, in my opinion, should be. So in steps, right? <laughs> OD&D with Chainmail Combat, which sets up the fighter to be a much more powerful foe not only are they a more powerful aggressor getting uh you know effectively more attacks um they uh are also uh because of the because the way i'm running, running it they're hit tire higher which means they are much harder to kill so your fighters really do step forward as really cool and really powerful now that all happens without having to have things like paladins and rangers and my fighter is an eldritch knight or my fighter is a barbarian or my fighter is a, uh, sorry, I can't remember all the classes in the modern editions, um, a viking or whatever, right? You can do that for flavor, but none of that matters, right? Now, you might be the type of player that wants to do character builds and wants stats to matter and stuff like that. And if you are, maybe that's not for you. But if you are into like a simpler system, um, this allows for you to play fighter types without Um, sacrificing, let's say, um, flavor that you want to add at your table or the power of the fighter by, let's say, restricting magic items. Um, Also, magic in OD&D, if you read it by the book (laughs) and not look at the spell and think of how you think it should be, um, is incredibly powerful. So if we look at the limited magic user, um, we know that their, their spell is really powerful if they only have one. But I'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. What I want to talk about right now is where I started rolling, right? So I, rolling, <laughs> you know, I I like all different types of fantasy, um, and I can appreciate various types of fantasy. I think that my favorite, though, tends to fall into a category that uh, would be categorized as sword and sorcery. So doing a little research, which is unusual for my podcast, but hey, you know what? Um, I found a couple of different uh, bits of information about it. The Wikipedia uh, on it says uh, the difference between sword and sorcery and epic fantasy, which would be probably uh, more along the lines of, well, I mean, not necessarily how people play modern, modern D&D, but oftentimes. Uh, heroes in epic fantasy are selfless. Um, no personal stake is motivating Frodo, for instance, right? So that'd be epic fantasy. And you might say, oh, no, my rogue is a chaotic whatever. Yeah, but, you, you know, most uh, D&D campaigns have this idea that you're saving the world, right? Most modern D&D campaigns. Uh, you know, the world is going to end, and you're trying to stop that from happening. It's easy enough to sit back. Like the, all the peasants are sitting back, letting the world end, right? You don't have to do it. So no matter how chaotic neutral you write down that your character is, if they're out there trying to destroy that big bag of evil guys as they like to say it, so that that thing doesn't destroy the world, they're being selfless in that sense, right? They're risking their life to save the world. Um, in Sword and Sorcery, uh, it says, heroes in Sword and Sorcery are motivated by greed or, it, in quotes, enlightened self-interest. So... <laughs> This kind of brings things down. So it's, you know, you could still have a world, world changing events happening in your sword and sorcery world. But generally speaking, what's happening is more, we'll call it on the local level. What's what's happening is, you know, your characters are building up their own personal stake so they can have their part of the world. You know, they, um, I got a book of short stories um, from, that was based on Cull. And I think the title of it was something like uh, Slave Soldier King or something like that. So, like, this is the idea, right? You're working your way up from uh, from the ground, right, to to ultimately build your own strength. You're not, you know, maybe you'll save the world, but that's not your motivation. Your motivation is that you want power. You want riches. Uh, you know, again, which ties into a lot of the like, XP for Treasure and the and d and that kind of stuff. So it's not like it's not there already. I just think that in a, in a more high fantasy game or a more epic fantasy game, I, I don't disagree with this. I think that you're out for that. So how am I going to uh, incorporate this into uh, my game? Um, l- if you look at original Dungeons & Dragons, when you reach a certain level uh, as a fighter, as a fighting man, as, as an OD&D, but a fighter, you uh, are able to take over a castle you know officially you gain a castle or a land piece you have men flock to you um you know you got to 10th level by raiding dungeons and killing dragons and getting treasure but all of a sudden i mean i gotta say all of a sudden i'm being a little sarcastic all of a sudden you're a lord and you have this stuff going on Now, in theory, if you actually are playing the game and anybody who's actually really played, you do build up stuff over time. I mean, there's intrigue and stuff like that, but it doesn't have to be, right? It's just something that's granted to you because of your status. So I wanted to take it slightly in the other direction with this, in a way. You don't gain things when you go up a level. You go up a level when you gain things. So for instance, when you start this game, uh, and again, level, so level is, is, I'll talk about how I'm going to use that later, but uh, I'm kind of doing an overview of the game right now. What's going to happen is you're going to start as kind of a, what, uh, I have my titles, a Wanderer. So as a Wanderer, you're going to begin the game as a hero by Chainmail's rules, right? Because this is uh, Sword and Sorcery, so you are playing a hero. Which means that if you don't follow the rest of the rules, that you're pretty damn tough. You know, three or four uh, castle guards are probably not going to be able to kill you. You will be able to, to win fights. You're going to be tough. You're starting this thing because that's right. That's the back and forth that we've had before about power building, right? Is that Conan right from the beginning could kick butt? Yeah, in this game you will be able to kick butt right from the beginning. Not everything's butt, but you'll be able to kick butt. Um, so as a wanderer, you're going to start with no armor uh, because armor is going to be expensive. You will start with uh, you know some kind of weapon, and you know dirt in your pockets, <laughs> working some kind of you know you came to civilization. Whatever your backstory is. You've come to the civilization and now you're working as, what, a bouncer at a club or shoveling hay or whatever you're doing. And you don't want that. You want to seek adventure. And that will be your first adventure. When you go out on this adventure, you're going to gain a reputation for yourself. When you get to the point where you've got enough gold pieces floating around your pocket, you've got enough uh, people following you and stuff that you are kind of uh, known. And at any time you can walk into a tavern and say, men... We have, I have an adventure and people will stand up and want to follow you on some level then you will go up to the next level which would be the freebooter level so if you're if it's unclear how this is, matters again at low levels in D&D you you as you gain levels people want to follow you here you gain levels once people want to follow you so once you can demonstrate that you have this going on so your charismatic personality your your prowess in the battlefield which means that you know, if you go out into the woods and you kill, uh, you know, a, a a an orc, let's say, There probably won't be orcs in this, but it might be. You go out in the woods and you you run into five orcs and you kill them, and nobody knows that you killed those orcs. You don't get anything for that. People need to know, right? So when you come to this town and and the, uh, you know, uh, people have been uh, attacked by this wild boar that's been like tearing up their land and 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 messing with their their livestock and stuff, or maybe even killed a, a child that was out. When you go kill that wild boar and you throw it over your shoulders and bring it back to town and toss it into the, the the town square and say, tonight we'll feast. That's how you gain a level in this, right? You want to prove that you are a hero. You want to show the world that you're a hero. But the reason why is because you want now, you know, the... Uh, the the townsfolk to love you the 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 men or women to to flock to you the the the, the barkeeps to give you free drinks whether you'd have a room you know for you to be able to throw gems on the table and say i'm buying rounds for everyone this is a this is a level in this game and so i'm going to produce things that are like harder to get so that as you level up like when you can acquire horses easily when you can acquire armor when you have a certain number of men that will follow you And when i say men here i'm talking about soldiers it could be men women whatever um This is when you go up to the next level and you become like a freebooter or an adventurer, a mercenary, right? A usurper, a warrior, and eventually the conqueror. You become king if you want to do that. Now, if you don't want to be a king, you never have to do the things that make you a king, right? It's not like in... It would be wise in, in d d to go, you know what? I'm at fifth level. I like fifth level play. I'll just stop gaining experience points. I mean, nobody's going to do that, right? <laughs> Why would you, right? You would just stop adventuring, I guess. Uh, in this case, you could stay at a level of a mercenary and just stay there forever. You could stay at the mercenary level. You could have your 100 men or whatever it's going to be, the, the, the status that gets you there. And you could just stay there and enjoy the game and have fun with it and go to different countries and do different things. So however you want to play the game will work. And the, it's going to be character and player driven because... It's what they do that will give them levels. Now, why do we care about levels? So, since Chainmail is essentially a binary <laughs> combat system, in other words, you're either alive or you're dead, right? Um, I wanted to, and of course, in if we look at Conan and this kind of stuff, right, we want to have a little plot armor um, on some level. So, your level is essentially your plot armor. So, let me kind of run through how I see this working. And again, I want feedback on this because I'm, this is just me sitting here Uh, the other day kind of having a general idea. When you are at the wanderer level, you then go out into the field and let's say that you are defeated. Well, you're dead. Nobody knows who the hell you are. You're a wanderer. Whatever that wanderer went into the woods to fight the boar, he's dead. Nobody cares. But once you're a freebooter and you've got men that follow you and you have a reputation in the town, you can't die that easily because the stories are building up, right? We're selling our stories to Pulp Fiction magazines. We can't just have our hero die. So... If you are defeated, let's say you're a freebooter and you've got 10 men and you go out to face this wild boar and it kills you or your men scatter or whatever Uh, kills meaning defeats. Because remember in Chainmail, in my version of Chainmail, zero hit points or or losing or whatever doesn't mean you're dead necessarily. It means you are defeated and it can be narrated out. So in the case of let's say you're a freebooter, you go out there with your men to face this wild boar and it takes you out. Let's say you fight in on fantasy combat, you lose. Well, you wake up, your men have left. Maybe they even like robbed you when you were knocked unconscious, right? You are back down to being a wanderer. You've got the clothes on your back and maybe a weapon, maybe not. Now you've got to go out and seek more adventure in order to get a men behind you to get people to follow you. People aren't following you anymore. They're like, oh yeah, that guy thought he was tough, but he went out there to fight the boar. and Man, he got his butt kicked, right? You've now lost a level. You've lost reputation. So maybe level isn't the right word. Maybe reputation is more the way we'll do it. And this happens on all levels, right? If you become the king and you're the conqueror and you lose a massive battle with 20,000 troops, you then drop down to a uh, the, the usurper, right? And now you've got like some, you don't lose everything. You don't drop all the way down to Wanderer. You drop down to usurpers. You've got maybe a thousand men that are following in you and you've like, uh, been banished off to the, to the wastelands and you're trying to rebuild your, your army there. Right. Or if you're an adventurer and you have like, you know, 30 men following you or whatever. Uh, 30 horsemen that are raiders following you and and you lose a major battle now you drop back down to freebooter where you've got a handful of your closest men stayed with you they didn't all leave right just the 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 ones that were like the extras so this is how you kind of can uh keep your plot armor going and of course obviously if you don't want to do that then you can just do your dead when you're when you get when you get defeated the first time which will still be really hard to do so i think this will allow you to play a game where you've got a bit of this plot armor you've got motivations right because you want to level up because obviously you could stay a wanderer forever but if a wand- if an unknown wanderer dies they die right so you want to get a bit of a reputation for yourself so that you don't just die if you you know lose in a combat um and this is basically it right so this is like the structure of the game you as a player character are going to uh lead the the almost like a west marches if you will if you've heard of that style of game right you're going to basically uh lead the campaign Um, forward by doing the things you want to do. Now, uh, the way, the one thing that is interesting about Sword and Sorcery, which I think is one of the reasons why it's hard to play Sword and Sorcery with uh, D&D more and more thematically than mechanically, is that in Sword and Sorcery, it's generally like one hero or maybe two, if you think like Farfoot and the Grey Miles, right? It's not a group of adventurers, so I've got a bit of an idea of how we're going to handle that so you can still play with, like, three or four friends and, and kind of keep that feel going. And I'm going to talk about that in the next podcast. So uh, let's take some calls.
1: Hi, Daniel. First, you should call your rules Haberk. Second, you should check a few other games. Warriors of Mars, of course, is a terrific one. But in terms of modern ones that you might get... To- inspiration from i suggest any of john m stater's rules also soul muppet publishing's best left buried and of course icrpg and especially the icrpg magic supplement
0: oh that's interesting uh, i mean I'll, I'll take a look at some of the things you're suggesting but best left buried and icrpg are pretty much the exact opposite of the direction i want to go <laughs> i don't think those are Heroic at all, and I think they're they're way uh, yeah, no, I think they're just hacks of yeah, no,
1: not at all. If you want games to have a more heroic feel, then one of the most important places to start is with not limiting yourself to theater of the mind. I know a lot of people say, Well, I tell my players that. They can do anything they can imagine, but in practice, they never do. They fixate on the first description the GM gives them, and then they just roll dice. Maps are really important, and having a mechanism for people to add to the environment is also extremely helpful. There are a lot of possibilities that players never actually explore.
0: Well, this feels like it could be a full-on uh, <laughs> series and probably a back and forth. I'm curious what different people think about that, but I will tell you right up front, I 100% disagree. I think miniatures, uh, and I played pretty extensively D and D with miniatures when I first got back with Five E. Uh, remove options more than they add them in my mind, unless you have full-on terrain where people can. They're they're still just going to see a blob. They're not. They're going to be like, well, how high is that boulder? And They're still going to have to ask that. So. Yeah, I don't think so. I think you're absolutely wrong. I think that players will engage with theater of the mind if you uh, deliver the information in a way that um, works. Sometimes we do it to, to uh, different extents, uh, and players that that are that play in the style that I like or the the way that I play, I am constantly asking the DM what's there. I don't fixate on what's in the room. I ask for things. My players often do that as well, so. I don't know you. Uh, your mileage may vary, I guess, but I can't see that it's more heroic to play moving around little figures on on the the board than it would be to be in theater of the mind. Because how do I show that cliff that they're jumping off of? How do I show that giant tree? How do I show the scale of the giant that they're fighting? I, I just mm, I'm not sure. But I guess let me know uh, what people think. Is do you think that theater of the mind is less heroic? Uh, if that's how I'm reading what John's saying, maybe I'm reading it wrong.
1: If you're attacking a group of orcs, what are you doing? You have a good chance of killing multiple, but how are you going to actually do something? Are you going to stand there and wait for them to come to you? Are you going to retreat and make them come to you one at a time? Are you, Or are you going to charge right in and a, into the midst of them and start hacking and slashing left and right, which is what Goblin Slayer does? All of those create tactical situations that are different and will affect the rest of the combat. Yeah, I think we
0: definitely disagree on playstyles. You're, you're, you're. Uh, as I stand, I, I'm flanked by uh, the power builders and the Johns, who are the, I guess, the tactical war gamers. Uh, and I sit somewhere in the middle, I guess, being flanked as I wave my sword around wildly to keep them at bay and back towards the wall. But um, yeah, I don't. I actually talked about this a little bit on uh, a call that I made to Rob over at, uh, uh, also known as Minion, or Minion also known as Rob. I think I always say it backwards. Over on Confessions of a Wee Timorous Bushi, the, of course, in that case we're talking about social interactions. But the idea that generally I prefer to roll before any major narration is made. That is. I attack them with my sword is all you need to say. Then based on your roles, I cut through four orcs as I move forward into the crowd. Because if I say I cut through orcs as I move forward into the crowd and then I miss or I roll terribly. No, you didn't. And you just narrated something that didn't exist. Now we need to re-narrate it again. Um, so that to me, just, I used to play like that. I always played like that. My players would be like, I'm going to jump forward and cut off the orc's head. Uh, natural one. Uh, Okay. No, I uh, stumble backwards, and uh, okay, now it's like no, it's like I'm going to attack the orc. I roll natural one. Oh, well, I move forward, but uh, you know, uh, I I slip on some blood and fall to my knee. Uh, Natural twenty. I up forward and chop his head off. That's basically how I like to play because I think it makes more sense. Um, If you are not playing that way, then I mean, tell me why it's better. I guess. other i'd be curious what other people think because i definitely disagree with you john based on what you said there unless i'm completely misunderstanding you um the idea of like saying i'm gonna do this now the movement part of it you do during the movement phase so that part i don't understand what you're missing there if if i if we're playing a game and once the characters move into melee unless they're going to retreat they're basically in the Malay. there's not really any i hate by the way i should say this is why i stopped playing minis i hate the idea that like oh i'm moving five feet to the left oh oh uh, you know, uh opportunity attack, all this other stuff. You're in a Malay, I'm I'm down with the original Gygax uh Gygax in Malay, where a Malay is people dancing around and bouncing and there's all this action going on. Uh, you know, you're not necessarily facing the same person every single round. Things are it's a it's a hectic, crazy fight. That's how I see Malay. I don't see this like people one at a time getting in line, uh, you know, uh facing off against each other or however, you know, it kind of tends to play out when you use miniatures, uh, at least in my experience. I guess if you use hordes that wouldn't happen, but um yeah i don't i don't play that way i don't think there's any problem with playing that way but it's just not the way i play i, I feel like fourth edition is really good for that and uh is something i want to actually look into because it's, it's been very interesting for me to uh to read about but oh read about i think i had a little canadian action going on there but anyways um yeah let me know what you guys think narrate first or narrate after
1: and all of that can be handled in different levels of detail when you're killing minions, it doesn't really matter how they specifically die. You're just killing them, and the tactical situation is changing. When you're fighting a more significant adversary that, that's going to take multiple attacks to get rid of, then it becomes important. You know, Are you fighting defensively? Are you trying to outflank him? Are you going to use something in the environment to get an advantage etc modern games try to formalize all that as a skirmish game but that in itself is highly limiting we need to get more role playing into combat itself
0: yeah i don't disagree and and that's exactly why i have fantasy combat much different than uh your your troop combat you know you got to keep in mind that with the chainmail system at least the way I'm using it with OD&D and the way I plan on using it. When you're fighting in troop combat, that's basically your minions. You're hacking through people. This is the way it is, right? Uh, but again, I think that at a certain point, if you're fighting 50 goblins, to explain every single round how you killed five goblins is boring to me. I think that at a certain point in a large skirmish, you're just dicing off, and I'm okay with that. Uh, when you're fighting a boss monster, if as like, people like to call it, that's when you go into fantasy combat, and that's when narration is everything. Uh, I know, probably based on what you're saying, you probably don't like that because now it, tactics don't really matter in fantasy combat. It's all theater of the mind. But that's how I like it, and hey, it's my game. You can feel free to play whatever games you like.
1: Another game I almost forgot about is Viking Death Squad, Runehammer's new game. It has a lot of really innovative mechanics for a very bloody violent game
0: yeah i mean from what i've seen viking death squad seems interesting but again still not the same direction that i'm going i don't care about metal i don't care about blood and guts i don't care about the end of the world Uh, i care about more like conan heroic you know weird uh situations that include um moral dilemmas ideas where when you're fighting 10 bandits that you can take them out. Howard often describes these kind of fights in just a handful of sentences. Like that's kind of the the type of combats and stuff that I really enjoy with with Chainmail. And the fantasy combat is, you know, the the big bad guy at the end. And that can be all the narration that we want, all the role play that we want. But most of the, the other stuff is really just uh, quick snippets of time where things are happening, highly abstracted. At least that's how I like to play it. And I understand that's not, exactly what chainmail does obviously if you put chainmail on the table it is a war game and it is moving figures around and it is a skirmish or whatever you want to call it but i'm just using some mechanics from it to to build upon to create something that is much more of a uh a theater of the mind type game, and which doesn't seem to be what you think is a good way to go but you know hey everybody has their own ways hey daniel <clears throat> great this is bj great episode on chainmail i'm glad you're going to get back to talking more about that again um and and you know, I noticed a similar thing. I had mentioned, I actually did a whole episode on it a while back, about Dragon Rampant, which is a newer war game. But it's one Colin Green suggested to me, and I really just kind of fell in love with it. <laughs> um, but I could see that as I kind of was learning the rules and thinking about how to put together an army and or two different factions so we, me and my son could play. And we're like, well, I can really see how... You could take a rule set like this. I mean it's not chainmail, but how chainmail could evolve into a fantasy role playing game, because you immediately say, okay, I've got certain units which count as equivalent of multiple units, and that just means it's an individual who's very powerful. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And and I I think part of so I've got two kind of thoughts here. Well, one is that I think the idea of using a war game really abstracts the world, which helps with the sword and sorcery type deal, because when you think about a lot of these books, like yes, there there are individual heroes that are, you know, doing things and traveling around, but typically there are things like war bands and uh you know, kings that are trying to take over areas and you know, these things, pirates, you know, there's these like large skirmish things that are happening around the hero that they get involved in. In a war game just makes that easier, right? It makes it easier to play out that part of it because when you remove that part from sword and sorcery and you just handle the very uh, intricate individual adventures, what you end up with is essentially what we've got now, right? (laughs) So it's almost like they were doing one thing and they thought, oh man, it'd be really cool to to do individual adventures because all we're doing is these large-scale skirmishes. And then that was so fun that it caught on and then everybody was just doing that and little by little, the other stuff kind of fell away and I think it it is uh possible to have both. I mean, I hope so, because that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I think that it's like super fun. Um, we're playing a game uh in, well, I'll say it in person, sometimes we play online, but basically we're not streaming it. And uh O D and D, I'm a player in it. And like we have now uh recruited because we had a battle with about twenty orcs and we, we defeated them, we killed half of them. There was only three of us, <laughs> uh, but we were heroes and um we got them to join us then we've like uh rigged them up with horses and stuff and then we went off and we had to fight this band of goblins that was uh, marauding in the area um and uh, there was 50 goblins now if you think about it right if you if you were playing a game that let's say uh, you didn't have fireball right <laughs> if you were like in a regular D&D game and you just had fighters like if you if you had to fight uh with uh, you know 13 player characters essentially uh, against 50 opponents like that would just be oh my god it'd be so hard to do like i just don't think it would be as fun as it was for us and we did the whole combat and i think it took four maybe five rounds i think it was about four rounds of combat finished the whole thing so it was uh four times around the table tossing huge handfuls of dice in the end you know we lost a few men we wiped out the goblins and that's it now the story can continue we didn't have to narrate out every single punch and blow it just worked and I think that's one of the, the the strengths of using a war game, is you can jump in and out of these different scenarios. So I'm hoping that um, that it'll it'll uh, it'll translate well, and I, and I really think that it will. I've already started breaking it down. I, I think this is going to be just a really fun uh, game, and I'll talk about it more soon. Hey, Daniel, Jason here for the Bandits Brigade. Really excited for this new version of your chainmail hack. And I like what you're saying. I like having the ballroom brawl stuff. Um, I, I don't like the implication that we're adding the dagger for thieves because I'm not a fan of sneaky thieves. But I, I am looking forward to, to what you're doing. So, And I think tightening down your podcast is fine. Or you, you just do some dedicated episodes for this or some dedicated episodes for other things. But if you want this to just be the Chainmail podcast and you want to use my podcast to speak out on other things, you can do that too. But either way, I'm here for you. Take care. Thanks, Jason. And, you know, I think you are probably, if you weren't the first, you were one of the first people to call into my show. And you've always been super supportive. And I, I see you as the anchor of the Anchor podcast community. Does that make sense? So <laughs> I do appreciate it. I think I'm just going to curate the show by talking about topics, this topic again. And I think it will generally bring calls in that direction. <laughs> so hopefully that's the case. And yes. I will uh, start trouble uh, with Joe and those kind of things over on your podcast. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that uh, it, it could be exciting. I mean, remember that Codan himself uh, was uh, at a time a thief. So we can't, uh, we can't worry too much about that. Although, you know, it's funny because people often say the, the Gray Mauser, right? He got far from the Gray Mauser and they always say, well, Mauser is a thief. And I think that people were thinking of him a little bit with the thief archetype. But if you, you know, if you, I'm sure you have read those stories, there, he wasn't a, really a thief in that sense, right? There was a thieves' guild. And those thieves, I think, are closer to the archetype in my mind. The sneaky thieves, as you say, that jump from rooftop to rooftop and use daggers and traps and uh, slings. So <laughs> I think the, the Mauser is much more as a fighter magic user because he has that little bit of magic. So I know a little bit of multiclassing, which isn't really allowed. But hey, you know what? Every once in a while, you got to break the rules. Okay then. Uh, thanks to all my callers. Um, as noted, uh, please continue to call in with whatever topics, and we'll try to sort it out. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? What do you think about sword and sorcery and, and and my ideas? What do you think about using war games and why that may or may not work? You know, do we like narrative combat? Like, I, I, do should we stick to the table uh, with minis? Is that going to make it more heroic or is theater of the mind more heroic? Is is there room for both? That's probably the answer. Um, You know, what do you guys think? So in any case, uh, yeah, talk to you soon.